Every single one of us was pursued when we didn't deserve it. Every single one of us has been embraced by a Savior who is faithful and true. That's his name. And you need to remind yourself that God is right there with you. You need to remind yourself that God makes promises and that God is faithful to us. Precious promises. The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Friends, do you believe that promise? That God offers the promise of transformation if we surrender to Jesus Christ. All right, well, good morning again, church. Welcome back to week six of our Promises of God series. If you are just joining us and you've missed any of these sermons, you can go catch up on those on our website. Um, We've discovered a lot of amazing truths that God promises his people in the scriptures through this series. Now, last week, we covered the promise of God's provision. Pastor Dave did a great job on that. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at God's promises for godly living. Now, I want to say up front that this message is probably going to feel just a little bit different Um, It's going to feel a little bit more instructive, maybe a little more exhortational, because God, yes, offers promises for godly living, but we are still called to live a godly life. So godly living is the way that we show that Jesus has actually changed our hearts. Or if I put it another way, it shows that our hearts have been branded by Jesus. However, Christianity we might say, currently has a branding problem because Christians often don't take godly living as seriously as they should. And the ramifications of this are captured in the words of Mahatma Gandhi, who famously said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So let's talk about brands for just a moment. This right here on the screen is my 2008 Subaru Impreza. I love this car. Right? This car has been with me since I graduated from Denver Seminary in 2009. This car drove with me from Colorado to California. This car drove for me then from California all the way back to New Jersey during a terrible winter storm in 2011, I might add. This car was the one I had when I married my wife and when my kids were born. I love this car. And one of the main reasons I love this car is because I love Subarus. Right? I love the brand. The reliable They have amazing all-wheel drive, snow cannot stop us, and they're fun to drive. Any other Subaru fans out there? Right? A couple, I see a couple hands, all right? So maybe some hands at home. See, here's my point. I have become, to some extent, a disciple of the Subaru brand. Now, maybe, maybe you don't love Subarus, but I'm willing to suspect that you love something, Here's a couple examples on the screen. Maybe you're not not a Subaru person. Maybe you're a BMW person. Maybe you just have to have the latest Apple product. Or, uh, you know, you have to get your, your coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. Or you have to watch Netflix. Here's the thing. All of these brands right here are trying to capture your heart. In fact, ad executive Douglas Atkin recently stated that the goal of marketing is to create a cult like devotion in people. So he says this, he says, people join brands for the same reason they join cults and religions. Interesting. To, to belong, he says, to make meaning. They move beyond, he says, he says, they move beyond merely being customers to being disciples. To being disciples. 
That is what Subaru and every other product you purchase wants. They want disciples. They want to brand your heart so that you will rearrange your lifestyle around an adherence to their product. They're inviting us into a longed-for lifestyle that their product promises to produce. So I would ask, what brand are you a disciple to? Because advertisers show us what we want, and it shapes the desires of our hearts. But what does the promise of godly living say? What does the Scripture say? Well, when it comes to this topic, I'm assuming that there's at least three groups of people listening today. First, maybe you're sitting here in this room, or maybe you're sitting at home, and you are the person who assumes they're living a godly life, and you need no correction. Right? The person who's sitting in the audience today or listening at home who is in this category is thinking that this message is for the person sitting next to them. So maybe you can turn to the person sitting next to you and say, this message is for you. Right? At home, turn to that person and say, this message is for you. The problem with this first group is that they don't see a need for this message in their life. But we're all called to examine ourselves, no matter how long we've been in the faith. Now, the second type of person listening today is somebody who feels defeated. They feel like, I've been trying to live a godly life, Pastor Bob, I just keep messing up. And I want you to know today that God's grace never runs dry. God's grace never runs dry, and he wants you to tap into his power for godly living. Now, the third type of person is someone who fears being vulnerable. Maybe that's you today. You're struggling, but you don't feel like you can share because you know that cancel culture is real. And so I want to encourage you today that you you need to find somebody with whom you can share. We can't become godlier on our own. We need to pursue Jesus together in community, and we all need to ask ourselves those same questions. Now, there's a famous story in John's Gospel Where one day, Jesus is walking along, and John the baptizer notices him, and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that moment, people start to take notice of Jesus, and the next day, two men who heard John's announcement about Jesus walk up to him, and as they're approaching, the text tells us this. It says this in John 1, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, the word seeking conveys this idea of desire. In other words, Jesus looks at these two men straight in the eye, and he essentially says, what do you want? Now, not in an annoyed way. More precisely, he's asking here, what's your heart's desire? They ask Jesus where he's staying, which is a natural question, but then look at how Jesus responds in verse 39. He, says, he said to them, come and you will see. Come with me. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, the text tells us earlier that these men are disciples, right? And in the first century, disciples were literally people who followed a teacher and learned from their words and actions. They spent every moment they could with their teacher. In fact, you could say that these these disciples were branded by Jesus, The fact that these men asked Jesus where he was staying and then, as we learn here, spent the entire day with him indicated their attention to be his disciples. In other words, they were going to reorient their lives around following Jesus. But there's a deeper point that John wants you to see here. The deeper point is this. When we encounter Jesus and we choose to follow him, it demands that we articulate what we really want what we're really seeking in life. 
What do you desire is what he's saying here. Because following Jesus will cause us to reorient our desires. And reorientation like that is what leads to godly living. This is the reason that Jesus asks his disciples the question, what do you want? So church, what do you want? Because many of our hearts are branded by the world. And if we're to embrace the promise of godly living, the interior of our hearts must be rearranged. Or put another way, our brand loyalty must shift. How? How do we embrace the promise for godly living? Well, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to the church in the first century explaining this very topic. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, he shows us how to embrace the promise of godly living. We're going to see three things. First, he shows us that we need to tap into the power of this promise. Second, we have to repeat the practice of this promise. And then third, we have to display the product of this promise. The power, the practice, the product. That's what he's going to say. And before we look at that in depth, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here today. Thank you for uh, the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, that you were the one who came and died for us on the cross, who paid the penalty for our sin. By your grace, you have given us the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live a godly life because of your finished work on the cross and that empowering presence of your help or the spirit you've left with us. Lord, I ask that you would move on our hearts today, uh, push us, exhort us to, to, be, to be more godly in the way that we live. For your glory and the sake of the gospel, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, the power of the promise. Because the pursuit of godly life is a war of loves, each vying for our heart. Because the reality is we cannot not love. All of us are seeking to serve a king and a kingdom. We will serve either the world's kingdom or God's kingdom. So think about it like this. Our hearts are like a compass. Okay, the needle of a compass is pulled in uh, the direction of the earth's magnetic poles. And those poles are really powerful. And they influence the direction that we move. If you want to go north, the magnetic pole is going to direct you that way. If you want to go south, it's going to tell you to go that way. Our hearts work the same way. There's an existential needle for how we live our lives, which pulls us in a certain direction. Which way will you be pulled? Which power will capture your heart? Because God's power has the ability to change the direction of the needle in our lives. Look at what Peter writes to the church in verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, Peter's writing these words to a church that's being pulled in all kinds of directions. In fact, the letter is specifically addressing the dangers of false teaching within the church. And one of Peter's key themes throughout this whole letter is, is this. Proper living requires the ability to discern between right and wrong. And so the promise of 2 Peter 1.3 is that God has given us the power we need for godly living. Now the phrase, his divine power, refers to that power that God himself gives to believers. And the word life is specifically referencing eternal life or the salvation we receive from God. Godliness is related to eternal life because, of the, uh, because it is the evidence of that our lives have been transformed. Or if I just put it simply, if you're a Christian, God himself has saved you and has empowered you to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to him. 
I'll offer you another modern picture. If you frequent the Dunkin' Donuts down here at Dewey Meadow, you may have noticed that there are charging stations for Tesla vehicles. In fact, maybe you've taken your car there. And every time I go to the drive-thru, I see multiple cars just sitting around, charging. The cars are spending time at the station, so they have power to move. And it's the same with us and God. We need to sit at the charging station with him to receive his power to live a godly life. How do we receive that power? Look at the second half of verse 3. He says this, We receive it through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Now the word knowledge refers to an encounter with Christ at conversion. That when we're called, it is, it is to continue to this day. The calling that Peter refers to here is, is effectual, meaning when God calls us to salvation, he awakens our heart. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we can live an excellent life. In fact, it's been rightly said, God does not just save us for the sake of saving us. He saves us for good works, which he prepared in advance for us. And so again, a central theme of Peter's letter is that believers will be morally transformed, but the foundation of that transformation is the grace of the gospel which saves us. In fact, this right here is our memory verse for this week. Why don't we say it together out loud, okay? One, two, three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And this promise gives us what we need for godly living. He, in fact, Peter even refers to the promise in verse 4, if we continue. He says, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now here's what's really interesting about these verses. What is Peter saying? He's saying believers inherited and inherit the promises of God when they come to know Christ at conversion. Yes, this verse is linked to verse 3 where he mentions Christ's glory, but there he's talking about the beauty of Christ we first see when we become Christians. In other words, what he's saying here is that focusing on the beauty of Christ leads to transformation. What's the divine nature he's talking about here? It was a cultural phrase at the time, which referred to being made into the likeness of a God, and in this case, specifically Jesus. How do we do that? We do that by escaping corruption. Now, before we leave this section, there's an important point I want to make, and I want you to see this. Paul is not saying that the material world here is evil. No, he, he is saying that we are corrupted when our sinful desires dominate, and this takes us back to the question, again, Jesus asked in John 1.38, what do you want? What are you seeking? What is your heart's desire? This is the point that Peter's making here. If your heart is ensnared by the world, if you're branded by the world's products, you will love what is evil. However, if you see the beauty and the goodness and the excellence of Christ, your heart will be transformed and your desire will be what Christ desires. In other words, then you will live a godly life. So at this point, you may be asking the question, well, how do I tap into this power? How do, I get, how do I get it? I mean, I believe in Jesus. I've prayed and given my life to him. I read my Bible, but I still have a problem living a godly life. What do I do? 
How do I tap into this divine power available to me at the charging station of God? Well, St. Augustine famously said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In other words, the reason we don't tap into the power source is because we have not calmed our restless hearts, and we find it difficult to sit at the charging station for even 30 minutes while our car receives power. The reason we don't have the power is because we've pulled the plug. How many of us have played in a swimming pool with a beach ball, right? Whenever I do this, I try to accomplish the impossible. Maybe you do this too. I try to hold the beach ball underwater, right? And it's incredibly difficult if you try to do it, right? The ball fights back. It tries to get back to the surface of the water. It's it's restless. The beach ball wants to be floating, It doesn't want to rest under the water. Now, on the other hand, if I try to float in the water, that's not going to work. I'm going to sink right to the bottom of the water, down to the bottom of the pool. Spiritually speaking, my weight is my love. It's what captures my heart. If my love is absorbed by material things in this world, I will be dragged down away from Christ. However, if my love is motivated by the power of the Spirit, I will ascend upward like the beach ball. The point is that discipleship leads to godly living and change, it changes the weight of our love so that I'm drawn to Christ and I want to be near him. And the, the way we tap into the power of godly living is by getting close to Jesus. And that only happens when the weight of our love shifts toward his presence. Because the closer you are to Jesus, the godlier you will be. This power then gets us to the second point, the practice of the promise, the practice of the promise. Now, let me ask you, does anybody know anybody that has an annoying habit, right? And I mean a habit that just drives you crazy, right? Like nail biting. Any nail biters out there? Chewing loudly? In fact, my wife will tell you that one of my annoying habits is leaving only a small amount of something in a container. So you want cereal and you get your hopes up and then you go to open up the box and there's not even enough cereal left for a bowl, Or you open the refrigerator and you find there's just a swig of orange juice left in the container and the bottle and people can't drink it. Right? These habits are, for many of us, unconscious. It's like breathing. But but they're habits that need to change nonetheless. Here's the point. Practicing the promises of godly living is about changing the love habits of our heart. Author James Smith says it this way. He says, if you are what you love and love is a habit, then discipleship Growing into Christ's likeness is a rehabituation of your loves. And I love, I love that phrase, a rehabituation of your loves. You have to change your weight, which will change how you live. How do we do this? Well, look at what Peter says next in verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Now, for this very reason is referring back to the avoiding the corruption of the world that he just mentioned in verse 4. And verse 5 to 7 are going to call the listener to a life of virtue, a life where we practice the promises of godly living. So if you want to avoid corruption by the world, through your, selfish desire, uh, through your selfish desires, you have to what? You have to make every effort to supplement your faith. Now, to be clear, this verse is not teaching that your works save you. No, he's saying that our faith, which comes from God's grace, is proved genuine through our actions, 
Faith in Christ is the root. It's the foundation for godly living. However, faith does not rule out our out effort on our part. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones offers this illustration to help you understand this. He says, before there can be activity in a Christian's life, there must be life. There must be muscles. Who's got muscles like, spiritual muscles like that, right? There must be the faculties and the propensities. This is the position of the Christian, he says. He has been given all of this. He has these muscles, these spiritual muscles, all pertaining to life and godliness. They're given. Here's what he says. He says, we are given the farm, we are given the implements, that all that is necessary. We're given the seed. What we are called to do is to farm. We are called to plow the field. In other words, we should pursue moral excellence or virtue. And when virtue is part of our life, knowledge will follow. What's knowledge here? Most commentators suggest it's knowledge of God's will and ways necessary for the Christian life. So here's a question. How many of you want to know God's will for your life? Right? I often hear people wrestle with that question. What is, what is God's will for me? What's God's will for my life? Especially if you're young. Well, you want to know what Scripture says right here? It says that God's will for your life is to live a moral life that is pleasing God and gives Him glory. And if you're doing that, more specifics may come, but it's not a guarantee. If we pursue knowledge of God's moral will, what happens? Look at verse 6. He says, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. And though he says, knowing God's moral will will lead us to have more self-control, which is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now, the opposite of this is what? It's unbridled sensuality. It's inflamed sinful desires. It's things like adultery. In Peter's day, those who lived a godly life exercised self-discipline and were able to restrain themselves. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and offer a word of application for our culture. Because it should be obvious to many of us that our culture does not encourage self-restraint. Our modern culture is enthralled by expressive individualism, which says that you should be able to pursue whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want, as long as it makes you happy and fulfilled. It doesn't matter if God would consider it sinful. That's a dirty word today. In fact, I'm waiting for people to cancel that word. Don't wait. It must happen instantaneously. Or as Oprah popularized the phrase, you be you. It's the year of you. What did she say at the Golden Globe? Speak your truth. This is the cultural message we often hear loudly, particularly if you're young. But Peter says that the promise of godly living results in what? It results in self-control, self-restraint. We're not to capitulate to our sinful desires. This self-control leads to steadfastness, or other translations say endurance, Right? This is the quality that allows us to persevere in the face of suffering. And as Americans, we don't like to suffer. Right? Walt Disney told me there's always going to be a happy ending. But in the Christian worldview, this side of heaven, there is not always a happy ending. Instead, we're to look to the future prize at the end of time. But when you have self-control and endurance, you will achieve godliness. What is godliness here? Let me share with you this helpful quote. Godliness is our alert awareness that God rightfully exercises active sovereignty over every aspect of daily life. 
I'm going to say that again. Godliness is our alert awareness that God rightfully exercises active sovereignty over every aspect of daily life. Now, do you know what that means? That means that God is in charge of my life, so I should live like it. And too many of us live our daily lives like God is not in control. But if we live like that, right, what would happen? Look at verse 7. And godliness will come brotherly affection, and brotherly affection will bring what? It will bring love. Now, brotherly affection, of course, means brotherly love, coming from the Greek word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This, this right here is a family-like devotion to others, which results in godly living within the church. But I want you to notice the final characteristic of godly living. What does he say here? He says it's love. Love is the crown of this all. That's what changes our hearts. It's love. Now, some of you may be saying, this is where I struggle, Pastor Bob. Right? I, 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 I believe all the right things, but uh, I, just, I just can't translate it into how I live my life. I'm a work in progress. Well, all of us are works in progress. God is not done with us. And that's why he offers this promise for godly living. He's going to conform us into his image. But have you stopped and asked yourself why most of us struggle with godly living? Why? And I think most of us know the answer intuitively, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state it right here. Ready? Right? The, the, the reason most of us don't live a godly life is this. Our loves are disordered. Our loves are disordered. And that's important because what you love shapes how you live. What you love shapes how you live. Do you remember my Subaru example from the beginning of the message? Right? I love that car. After all, what is the tagline of Subaru? Their tagline is love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. And my love for Subarus will cause me to purchase another Subaru because what you love shapes how you live. Author James Smith says love is like gravity. It pulls you in a certain direction. It causes you to orbit a certain planet. Love has the ability to change the very course of your life. And this, again, takes us back to Jesus' question in John 1.38. He says, what are you seeking? What do you want? What do you love? Because we seek what we love. And the way Peter uses love here is not a qualification. Rather, it originates from a sacrificial desire for the good of the other person. Or as Jesus said, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will what? You'll love your neighbor as yourself. See, verses 5 to 7 are, are a, a chain. Or a better illustration would be this, that they're a finely cut diamond. As some of you know, when you purchase an expensive diamond ring, the jewel shines bright. In fact, in these verses, the setting of the ring would be faith, which comes from God's grace, and the jewel would be the diamond. That's what represents love. Because a Christian life will display the beauty of godly living because they love their Savior and they want to be close to their Savior. The power comes from God, which leads to the practice of the promise. Now, what does the practice look like? How do you change your heart habits? How do you rehabituate your heart so that you are living a godly life? Well, like a musician, what we each have to do is recalibrate our hearts on a daily basis. In fact, John... Bonaventura, our, our worship director, he's a great musician. He's up here. We got a lot of great musicians up on stage. 
But he has to make sure his guitar is in tune if he's going to sound good. Imagine he's up here playing an out-of-tune guitar. He has to, it has to be recalibrated daily, and so do our hearts. That's what practice leads to. So let me offer just two quick application points on how we recalibrate our hearts. And the first one is this. We have to be silent before God and let Him speak. We have to be silent before God and let Him speak because, you know what, I received this advice from a counselor one time, and it's revolutionized my life. She was saying, you know, so many times we go before people and we we lay out our laundry list of prayers and concerns, and that's not necessarily a bad thing before God, but we never stop to pause and actually let God speak back to us and listen for his voice. Because first and foremost, we should be silently sitting before him and letting him speak and letting him take a scalpel to our hearts. Second, we have to let be silent before others and let them speak into our lives. And if you don't have a trusted Christian friend who can speak truth into your life, you're missing out on an opportunity to grow in godliness. Because we all have blind spots. And many people outside of our, uh, who are outside of ourselves can see our warts and call us to account. This is the key to practicing the promise of godly living. So we have the promise of God's power. However, we also have to practice that promise. We have to live it out. And when we do both of these things, we see thirdly, we see the product of the promise. The product of the promise. See, when the power and the practice are wed together, we get a product. It emerges. And we should desire that the promise of godly living produces an attractiveness to our faith, not a repellent to our faith. And sadly, as we've seen recently and too often, the private lives of certain Christian leaders have, we've respected for many years, have been anything but godly. And those stories repel people from the faith like a broken Subaru engine. This is not to say that any of us are perfect. We're not. But we should strive for godliness. People should see a difference in us. We should winsomely communicate the truth of Christ. This product is where Peter finishes in the last section. Verse 8, he says, For if these qualities, from verse 5 to 7, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see what he's doing here? He's referencing, again, these qualities he's just discussed, and he says if you're growing in faith, if you're increasing in love, you're going to be what? You're going to be effective. You're going to be fruitful, a fruitful agent for the kingdom of Christ. However, if you're not growing in these areas, the opposite is true, right? You have the power. You need the practice so that, that there will be a product for God's glory. Now, I know the term product sounds maybe a bit too corporate, um, so it just works better for alliteration, <laughs> If that word offends your sensibilities, a better word is fruitful, right? Our desire should be to bear fruit for the gospel, and godly living is key to this. And I have to say again, too many Christians miss this, especially today. We think that how we live doesn't matter, but it does. People see us. The world sees us. And we must keep claiming the promise of godly living and pressing into Christian growth. If we don't, What does Peter say about life and faith? Look at verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, that verse sounds harsh. However, while it seems harsh, 
I think Peter is actually offering a gentle and loving correction here. So imagine Peter, the great apostle, coming up next to you, putting his arm on your shoulder and saying, I think you got some blind spots. I think you got some blind spots in the way that you're living. So let me encourage you. Press into the gospel of grace. Believe the gospel of grace. Don't forget that Jesus died on the cross for you. He loves you. And let that grace motivate you to live a godly life. Because godly living is a response to grace, not an attempt to earn God's favor. You already have it because of what Christ did. So Peter continues in verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, confirming your calling means that our lives, again, are evidence of our faith. It shows our hearts have been branded by Jesus. And that word diligent can also be translated as eager. In other words, we should be eager to live a godly life. Are you eager to get close to Jesus is what he's saying here. Or is your mind always wandering to something else? Because Peter says if you practice these qualities, you will never what? You'll never fall. You know, in the game of basketball, a player who is fouled often has the chance to shoot a free throw worth one point. If you don't follow basketball, that's what a free throw is. It should be one of the easiest plays in all of sports. It's it's a direct, unguarded shot at the basket, and the conditions are exactly the same every single time. Yet for decades, elite players like Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, they all struggled and averaged only between 70 to 75% at the free throw line. It's like they, they had a C when it came to free throws. Because free throws had little to do with inborn talent or athleticism and almost everything to do with hard work. And that's probably why the best free throw shooter on earth, at least in practice settings, is, isn't a pro basketball player. It's a guy named Bob Fisher, a 62-year-old soil conservation technician in Kansas. In fact, a few years earlier, in his 50s, he started practicing free throws every day at his local gym And within a couple months, he was consistently sinking more than 100 shots in a row. Fisher says it's all about preparation and practice. It's about practice. It's about an eagerness to pursue a goal. It's about being in love with the right things. Because if you're in love with Jesus, the product will be evidence in our lives. And at some point, as you're practicing, you're going to get put in the game. And if you want to live a godly life when it's hard, all that practice of pursuing him, all that practice, all that time you spent with Jesus, it's going to pay off. So as we close this section, let me offer an exhortation to those who have been Christians for many, many years. Never stop pursuing Jesus. Never stop. Even if you've been going to church your whole life, 50 years or more, the Christian life is not about coasting It's about a constant, eager pursuit of our Savior. Too many people give up at the end. Theologians talk about salvation this way. They say that in a sense, if you're a Christian, you have been saved through justification. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, yes. But there's also a sense that we are being saved through our sanctification, right? We're growing more in Christ's likeness. And then there's a sense that we will be saved finally in the future. That's our glorification, How we live now matters. 
Because one day we will stand before Jesus. And that's how Peter finishes this whole section in verse 11. He says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this verse has the end of time in view. He says, We will come before Christ and we will enter his kingdom. And the only reason we are entering his kingdom is because of the blood of Jesus, by his grace. That was the power we discussed in verse 3. But godly living is evidence that that salvation was true and it took root. A life tapping into the power of God's promise. A life spent practicing the pursuit of that promise. A life spent displaying the fruitful product of that promise brings God glory. Now, many of you know and may have been touched by the ministry of Dr. Timothy Keller. You probably also know that he was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, an intimidating diagnosis. In fact, last week he wrote an article in The Atlantic entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And here's the tagline. He said, I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis. Will I be able to take my own advice? The article is a raw, honest discussion of his faith and fears as the end is drawing near, potentially. In in my own life, he has taught me a whole lot about living the Christian life, and now he's teaching so many of us how to die well. (laughs) After explaining his journey, here's how he concludes the article. He says this, To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, his wife, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we enjoy it. This charge... Change is not an overnight revolution, because as God's reality dawns on my heart slowly and painfully through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It's only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. He's saying that when we recognize this world is not our home, it helps us to live a godlier life here and now. And one day we will stand before our great God and King, and He will say to us, if we pursued Him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we will say, Lord, it's simply by the work of Christ that I can come in. We will say, as the song goes, before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love lives and pleads for me. It's by his blood that I enter your kingdom. And my godly living is evidence that I knew this truth. Our godly living is proof that we tapped into that power. So as we close, I'll come one more time back to John chapter 1, verse 38 where Jesus simply asks us, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What do you want? What do you love? Because what you love shapes how you live. What you love shapes how you live. Because when you love something, you will move heaven and earth to get close to it. When you love something, you will literally give your life for them or it. Why does a man spend a fortune to purchase a diamond ring for a woman? Why will people work 80 hours a week? Because what you love shapes how you live. And you know, there's many forces in our world that are seeking to disciple us. Cable news and political pundits, they're, they're trying to shape our view of the world. 
Advertising companies want our hearts to be enraptured by their products. Movie studios want us to watch their, their stories and buy into their narratives. And the reason we tune in, the reason we purchase, the reason we watch is because all these forces are offering an answer to what we seek. They are forming us. And today, I want to tell you that what we need is a counter-formation. We need to be reshaped. We need to run after the only one who can satisfy our longings. And that's why Jesus answered his disciples this way, come and you will see. Come and you will see. What are you seeking? Will you come and see where Jesus is staying? And will you spend the day with him? It's then that the promise of godly living will be fulfilled. Amen? Let me invite the worship team back on stage for one final song, and as they come, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for your grace, Lord. Thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives. Lord, I pray for my friends here today that you would just encourage them, Lord, that you would draw them closer to you, Lord, that, that we would live a godly life because of what you have done for us, Lord, and may we receive the power for that godly life as we draw closer to you and as you rehabituate our heart with a love for you and not a love for this world. Thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.